Hi listeners, it's Michael here, your host of the Akinanth podcast. Before we get to the episode, I'm so happy to share with everyone that the day this episode is coming out is actually the one year birthday of the podcast itself. I launched the show on May 13th, 2019, and here we are now with episode 125 coming out on May 13th, 2020. For myself, speaking with all the guests has been a real joy, and this is easily one of the coolest things I've ever worked on. It has been amazing also to see your engagement online, to have patrons supporting the project, and to have so many people listening three times a week. Whether you've made your way through the entire catalog of episodes or you're just listening for the first time right now, I want to thank you so much for being interested in archaeology and anthropology. I hope you'll stay interested because I've still got a lot planned for the future of this podcast. And so speaking of which, I'll leave you with this episode with Alexandra right now. I hope you enjoy hearing it as much as I enjoyed recording it with her. Hello, listeners. I am Dr. Michael Rivera, and I am the host of the Arcananth podcast. Welcome again to another episode where we will be talking to experts in the fields of anthropology and archaeology. And I'm so happy to have this guest on because similarly to me, I know that she loves biological anthropology and science communication. Our guest today is Alexandra Kralik. Alexandra, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. So happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you on. Where are you calling in from today? Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I've been to Philadelphia for, uh, must have been more than 20 years now. <laughs> no way. Was it one of those like field trips to see the Liberty Bell and stuff? <laughs> well, I was a kid and um, my mom was taking me to uh, just on a quick trip to New York, uh, DC and to Philadelphia. And uh, I hardly remember any of it. So I, I definitely have to go back. Uh, do you think that you know, do you think it's likely that it's changed a lot in the last 20 years? Yeah. I mean, uh, I've only been here for four now, but, uh, it's, it's definitely one of those cities that, uh, you know, has all of a sudden kind of gotten a hipster culture to mm-hmm. it. And so there's some aspects of the city that are very new, uh, with all those hipster bars and stuff that are fun. Uh, but there are some things that always stay the same about Philadelphia and the wonderful museums is one of those things. So that's mm-hmm. definitely one of my favorite things about Philadelphia not just the Independence Hall and all the history, but, um, you know, that I work at the Penn Museum, um, mm. which, I mean, that the Penn Museum is always changing too, but uh, the outside of it always looks the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like um, you mentioned four years, well, what are you doing right now in, in Philadelphia? So I'm getting my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm in my fourth year, finishing my fourth year, about to start my fifth year of my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm out of coursework now. I'm all but dissertation. So I'm just in the research part of the PhD. Wow. But yeah, yeah, I love love being in Philadelphia. It's a really uh, dynamic, interesting city. Um, It it definitely fits the the kind of moniker we give it of gritty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a very gritty city, I think, in a good way. Yeah. (laughs) I saw... um very recently, and I might be mistaken, but I, I think that I saw towards the end of last year that you had went to um, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Um, to collect some data, I think. And I was curious, like, what did the Smithsonian curate that you were interested in visiting? Like, what, what was relevant for you in, in your PhD research there? Yeah, so I've actually um, been doing research at the Smithsonian since I was an undergrad. I mm-hmm. did my undergraduate degree at George Washington University. And uh, I took a lot of classes that were at the Smithsonian. And uh, then I started doing research on gorilla bones at the Smithsonian. So when I came to uh, Philadelphia and kind of devised this dissertation around orangutans, my first thought was that collection. Mm. I'd known it from my experiences as an undergrad. And I kind of, I knew the ins and outs of what they had. And so it's actually the place where I started my dissertation research. And I've since expanded to a lot of other museums, but I was there in the fall CT scanning orangutan long bones. Wow. Mm-hmm. Really fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so speaking of like uh, gorillas and orangutans, how would you describe the biological relationships between us, Homo sapiens, and the other great apes? Like how many different kinds of great apes are there? And are they distributed all around the world like humans are? Yeah. Well, mostly uh, there are no great apes in Europe or South America or North America. So all the great apes are in Asia and Africa. Uh, While there are monkeys all over the world, 
apes are a little different. You can tell the difference between apes and monkeys because apes don't have a tail. Mm -hmm. That's always a fun factoid for people. Um, But there are two species of chimpanzee, uh, two species of gorilla, and those are all in Africa, and then three species of orangutan in Asia. The Tapanuli orangutan was actually just discovered recently. So Mm -hmm. it used to be two species of orangutan, but now it's three. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like generally speaking, if we're looking at um, overall, you know, bone shapes or sizes, like what can we say are the main differences between the skeletons of these various great ape species? Yeah. I mean, when you look at the bones, it's actually kind of hard to tell the difference between gorillas, chimps um, and orangutans on first sight. Um, In terms of the skull, um, people generally can tell very quickly by the size. So the smallest is the chimpanzee and the biggest usually is like the big male gorillas. Mm-hmm. Um, and the orangutans kind of fall somewhere in between there. The orangutans faces, if you see orangutan skull kind of look unique because their eyes kind of look a little rounder. Mm-hmm. At least I think so. Um, there's so there's a lot of little tricks like that, but um, ultimately the anatomy is pretty similar between the different species. The, it's really hard to tell the difference between the different uh, species of gorilla kind of with the naked eye, but there are definitely differences that you can see um, if you're really trained and you know the differences. And um, gorillas walk on all fours. They actually walk on their knuckles. And so you can actually see some differences in their hands and feet because of that. Mm-hmm. And orangutans are swinging in the trees. They do something that we call brachiation, which mm-hmm. is uh, swinging on their fingers, really. And so they definitely don't have that same anatomy um, around their knuckles and their hands. But mm-hmm. again, those are things that are pretty tricky to see. Um, I think we tend to go with um, kind of differences in size if we're just kind of, if I pull out a drawer and I'm trying to immediately figure out which one it is. Right. I remember like in, uh, in my, in my own undergraduate degree, I also did uh, biological anthropology back then, uh, back in 2009 or 2010. And I remember what we had to do was look at the different great ape species and their skeletons um, because we had a very good, uh, you know, we had really good skeletal casts of of all of their skeletons. And we had to like draw, um, try and draw, you know, their shoulder anatomy, their hand anatomy, their skull morphology, just so we could, you know, get familiar with all the different body parts. So, yeah, it's a lot of it is kind of getting trained and used to it. they do have all the same bones that we do, and um, but generally they can be kind of in different proportions, right? So they'll have longer arms uh, than we do mm-hmm. and shorter legs. So it's really funny when you pull out the femur and uh, this upper leg bone and how much shorter it is than ours. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely the same bone and it has all the same kind of shapes to it, but the proportions are, and sometimes even little subtleties about them. Um, are a little bit different, but it's the same bone. So mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. So I'm kind of like spoiled already as to what your research is about, but I obviously want all the listeners to learn about it too. According to you, so we already know that these differences exist between them, but what do we not yet know about the skeletal variation among these species? Like what are the main hypotheses or questions that you realize probably needed looking further into for your PhD? Yeah. So um, we... Generally, when we compare these, we do it on a species basis. So we're comparing orangutans to gorillas to chimps to better understand our own evolution. Mm-hmm. But we don't know a ton about within these species. And particularly, we don't know a ton about sex differences mm-hmm. and even within sex differences. So in orangutans, males have two very different ways of living their reproductive lives. Some mm-hmm. of them become these big alpha males that you see at the zoo. They've got these big old cheek pads on their face and um, they have these big throat pouches and and they're kind of those alpha dominant males. But there are also males that are reproducing and making babies, but they don't look like that. They don't have those secondary sex characteristics is what we call them, but they, they kind of look like just a fully grown adolescent. And we have no idea how that affects their skeleton. So I realized really quickly that that kind of information could be really important when we're trying to understand species differences and um, sex differences and within sex differences and how that affects the skeleton. And I was really excited because I remembered that the Smithsonian has these skins of of the orangutans. They don't just have bones. And on the skin, I could tell if they had those cheek pads. 
just by looking at the skin. Right. And then I could connect that to the bones and see if the bones had any differences and started to find these really big differences in the bones. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been the um, origin of this dissertation. And I just keep finding more and more ways to study the differences between them. It's really exciting. Mm -hmm. I know that you uh, previously had looked at the growth of not bones, but, um, you know, teeth in your research. Yes. How does it relate to your PhD work now? Yeah, that's a great question. So my senior thesis thesis was on gorilla dental development. So I went off to Rwanda. There's a collection of gorillas there Mm -hmm. with associated known age. So we actually know how old they were when they died. And that's really, really rare and special. And so we were able to connect how the teeth looked, how much they developed, and the age at which these gorillas had died. And it's really helpful information. Then when you have a gorilla and you don't know how old it was, you can kind of estimate that based on this information. Mm-hmm. So having having learned that and studied that, I came at this question of orangutans also from the perspective of growth and development. And I used CT scans of the teeth the same way I'd done it for my senior thesis to figure out how old they were, make sure they were adults. And mm-hmm. then one of the biggest differences I immediately found was in the growth and development of the skeleton. So um, it was really quite an immediate extension of this knowledge already that I built as an undergrad of growth and development. Wow. When it comes to like the growth of bones, is it like uh, asking when it will reach uh, the length or the shape that we expect in adults? Um, Or is it like, you know, whether there are multiple growth spurts and and when those occur? Yeah. So there's a really cool thing about long bones. They, um, you might remember when you're growing up, if you ever had a fracture or broken bone, it was always a big concern of if it affected the growth plate and you didn't want to affect the growth plate. So what that means is that on the ends of the bones, there are these unfused bits that stay separate from the long bone until you're done growing to your adult height and then they fuse on and become one solid bone. And it's, it's a really cool thing about long bones. The skull does something very different and the sternum does something different, but the long bones, this is what they do. And so we can actually tell by how, how they're fusing, how adult you are. And, and when you've reached your adult height, they start to fuse kind of in a different order. At least in humans, we, we always know the order. Mm-hmm. Once they're all fused and all done, you're totally adult. That's the height you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And if they're still open a little bit, you might still be growing taller a little. So um, I've been looking at kind of the, the rate of these closing and how much they're closed. And the cool thing is that, that there are some orangutans that are totally adult. In their teeth, they're totally adult. And that's a, a really good, reliable indicator of how adult you are. But mm-hmm. their bones are still fusing and they're still open. Hmm. And I call, I call one of them the old man with the baby body. <laughs> uh, how stark the difference is. It's just crazy how old his teeth are and young his bones are. How do we know that they are, uh, you know, young or, or old orangutans? Like how do we, is it the same as, um, you know, in humans we have like a, a wisdom tooth. Is there something like that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In humans, I mean, sometimes people don't even have a wisdom tooth, but all orangutans do. Mm-hmm. In fact, some orangutans even have a fourth tooth. Oh. So the wisdom tooth is your third molar. A couple orangutans sometimes will even have a fourth. It's just as <laughs> useless as our wisdom tooth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that shows you how much bigger their mouth is, that they can even have another tooth mm-hmm. sometimes. Is it very easy for them to uh, then get a cavity like, you know, so, so often we in humans uh, have, or um, is there, you know, does it ever grow out of place and, you know, people have to pull it out? I've never seen them pull it out. And in fact, usually it just kind of looks impacted and never used to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I don't see the gums, but it doesn't, when I see that fourth tooth, it doesn't look like it's been used. Um, kind of the way that an impacted wisdom tooth would probably look <laughs> on a skeleton. But yeah. that's my guess. But um, <laughs> I have seen cavities. I've seen a lot of cavities in orangutans, actually. Mm-hmm. Especially ones that were in zoos and maybe fed the wrong food, like from you know a zoo in 1920. But also sometimes even wild orangutans do get cavities. And they eat a lot of fruit and, you know, you get cavities from sugar. I'm not really sure. I don't think it's been well studied, Mm -hmm. but I have seen orangutan cavities for sure. Mm -hmm. Why is it that we don't really know too much about, um, you know, like the growth potentials or the development of the shafts and and of the bone joints? Is it because like it just hasn't been studied before or um, was there a lack of samples? I think there's a couple biases, actually. One of them is that we don't know the age very often of specimens. 
specimens. So that collection in Rwanda I studied of gorillas was very rare. Most of the time, we don't know the age. And that can make studying growth and development really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And so the other kind of bias and issue is particularly with orangutans, they have a really weird growth and development. They breastfeed for like eight years. Hmm. Uh, It's really slow. And then you have this weird thing going on with the males. Uh, They're often kind of just considered weird. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) that can bias how much we study them because it it can make it just seem really hard. Um, And I think also if you're interested in questions of shape of the bones and how how that compares to human bones, um, most research has been around adult shape because the shape can kind of change a little bit during growth and development. Um, So I I think we kind of have a little bit of biases in research and it's kind of ended up in this hole of unstudied stuff that I think it's, there's no good reason for. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's still really creative ways we can get around those problems and still study this Mm -hmm. stuff. And uh, you mentioned earlier, like that, uh, at least in the orangutan world, there was a, a new species that was announced, um, you know, endemic to Southeast Asia, the Tapanuli orangutan. Um, take me back to that day when, when you heard about that news, like, did it change anything about your research? Did it <laughs> like sort of shake up your, your research questions in any way? Yeah, I wasn't sure actually how much it was going to be widespread accepted in the scientific field. Mm-hmm. And it was really fun because I, I tweeted something about there only being two orangutan species. And immediately all of these orangutan, you know, researchers and professors commented, no, 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 there's three. And I was <laughs> like, oh, okay, now I know. That is accepted <laughs> in the scientific community. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was fun. I was actually TAing for primatology at the time. So it was really fun to talk about it with the students and um, show them the findings I think um, there were a lot of questions at the beginning of how much there was morphological and genetic difference. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really exciting to read the papers and find out that it's true. We really didn't know as much about orangutans as we thought we did. Um, And I think it's kind of felt like a lot of validation for the work that I do is we're in this amazing, exciting place where despite having known about these animals existing for uh, you know, as long as humans have been around, there's still so much we don't know mm-hmm. about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least from what I know, um, especially if you want to study them in the wild, um, behaviorally or, you know, get biological samples for them there, it's just that like orangutans are quite elusive and they're yeah. really hard to, you know, um, access or, or to even observe because they're just hanging out in the trees and, um, you know, they don't have, they don't have any need. They don't have any obligation to come down and help you out with your research. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And there's even more problems of that. Um, they can kind of, they're considered kind of solitary living animals. Mm-hmm. The males kind of can end up disappearing when they go off through puberty. And when they come back, they look so different if they flange, if they get those big cheek pads, mm-hmm. that it can be really hard to recognize that was the same male. I, I, I always tell people, you know, when you watch those glow ups, those human <laughs> with humans, you're like, you're, they're all over TikTok and all over Twitter, like a picture of like a teenage boy and then an adult man. And you're like, how is that the same person? I'm like, okay, but imagine that. But then they all start getting these like giant fatty deposits on their face <laughs> in a throat pouch. Like you really can't recognize them at all. Um, yeah, it's like the primate version of that TikTok. Yeah, exactly. Oh, they <laughs> It would be really good. I should make one of those someday. That would be <laughs> um, what about like when it comes to the sex differences then? So, like, so do you have an expectation already as to uh, how, you know, orangutans or gorillas, um, how they will differ between, you know, females and males? Yeah, that's also a great question. So we mostly link kind of these big size differences to mating systems. So in chimpanzees, there's not a mating system where it's, like one male with one female, they kind of mate with whoever they want to when they want to. So the size differences aren't super big. Uh, There's less competition between males. Uh, Everybody, most people, most males kind of get a chance to mate. Mm -hmm. But in in gorillas, the chances to mate are really limited by whether or not you have your own group of females. So there are, are, there's like that one big silverback male gorilla that will have his kind of, they, we actually use the word harem, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of odd, but he's got his group of females and there are males who don't have access to any females. Mm-hmm. And so there are these huge size differences um, between males and females because there's huge competition within males to be able to mate. And so going into it with orangutans, 
they do have kind of, you know, we kind of argue whether or not they're territorial and a male kind of has his preferential access, but it's definitely closer to the kind of gorilla situation than chimp situation in that there are some males that are really big and dominant and alpha and you expect Mm -hmm. them to get a lot more mating opportunities. So they kind of have a lot more competition. So Mm -hmm. you tend to have bigger size differences, not as big as a gorilla maybe, but, but more than a chimpanzee Mm -hmm. or a human. And and what about those uh, orangutans with like the, uh, you know, no secondary sex characteristics, like those uh, smaller, more agile ones, do they sort of like throw a spanner in the works? They totally do. So for a long time, everybody thought that they just weren't really mating much not getting a lot of chances. And, and to get chances, people thought they were kind of forcing themselves on a female. Mm-hmm. But it turns out a number of orangutans will try this strategy, not just those. And sometimes a female wants to mate with them. So they're, you know, they're actually getting more chances to mate than we originally thought, which made mm-hmm. it a lot more complicated um, that all these males are getting chances to mate and mm-hmm. they're all making babies. Maybe the alpha ones are mating with females that are more fertile or, but there's, you know, they're all still making babies. So I thought that really made this much more of like a question that we needed to start, start studying right now. Yeah. yeah. And so like these, um, any hypotheses about maybe how the skeletons will differ is, seems like it relates back to, you know, our understandings of their social groupings and their sexual selection, their reproductive life histories. Yeah. I was really thinking that the size would kind of be in between for these, um, what we call unflanged males, these kind of adult males that kind of look like a juvenile, mm-hmm. but, um, their, their bones are way more complicated than I, uh, kind of originally hypothesized. And the, the interaction between hormones seems to be really interesting and complicated for them. So they kind of have this bone length that's not always clear cut. There's kind of a range of bone lengths that they're having, but mm-hmm. What consistently is happening is that their bones are thinner and um, smaller in terms of like thickness and size than mm-hmm. the big, big alpha males. And it's much more in the female range. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think, I think this result really speaks to the question of the sex binary. You know, we tend to think that in humans, males are always bigger and stronger than females. And we assume that in species with even bigger sex differences, like or gorillas and orangutans, that that would always be the case. Mm-hmm. And these males are showing us it's not. They can be reproducing and making babies, and, and in that sense of the word, fully adult male, yet mm-hmm. have, having bone measures that completely overlap with females. And in mm-hmm. other ways, they don't, but I, I do think it just shows us how complicated biological sex really is. Yeah. Um, you mentioned hormones, um, and that was going to be like my next question. Like, Are there... Uh, hormonal studies or like uh, even genetic studies out there that have talked about, you know, what produces growth? Like what are the bases of growth and development in the skeleton? Yeah. So the, the, there are a number of studies on testosterone and how that affects growth and development of the skeleton. And then it's kind of sister hormone or um, related hormone estrogen. And so testosterone kind of turns into estrogen in the body and, and estrogen some of it turns into testosterone in the body. So they're very related. And there are a lot of studies about them. Estrogen is really what causes bones to close up and finish growing. But testosterone tends to get them to shoot up in size. Hmm. And so it's kind of an interesting relationship that's happening there. So when a female goes through puberty, she gets this surge in estrogen and her bones finish. Mm-hmm. And uh, when a male's going through puberty and he gets a surge of testosterone, the bones tend to get longer and taller. And then with uh, some of that turns into estrogen and then they nicely close up. Mm-hmm. So there are studies on testosterone and estrogen differences. We do know that testosterone is very different between these two males. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, people were wondering if stress is different between them and that stress hormone is cortisol. And there's really contradictory evidence around this, and it's been really hard to study. Mm-hmm. But uh, my poster that would have been at the APAs this year that I did put up on Twitter and uh, ResearchGate with my friend Kate, we looked at stress in their teeth um, as kind of another way of looking at cortisol, but um, 
maybe without a lot of some of those complicated factors when you're looking at living ones, you have a whole life of this tooth in front of you rather than this just one snap, snapshot of when you're looking at the cortisol. Mm-hmm. And we found very big differences in cortisol um, between the flanched and unflanched males. So that was really exciting mm-hmm. for us. Yeah, uh, This is just an aside, but uh, sometimes in human archaeology or in human biology, at least from what I understand about studies on like, you know, estrogen and progesterone or studying health or ancient diets or stress levels, we actually had this problem for a while where the full variation wasn't really being captured because... I think some anthropologists and archaeologists, they were concentrating a lot on samples that they estimated to belong to human males. And there was ignoring of human females. Is there, or has there been a similar problem in primate morphology studies, I'm wondering? Oh, that's such an interesting question. We definitely have a problem. Uh, The collections were collected by, you know, these men over a hundred years ago who went out to the forest mm-hmm. and collected the ones they thought would be interesting. So um, for some collections, you have a bias in there being a lot more males because the men who went out and hunted them thought that they would be more interesting. Mm-hmm. And often females kind of came along with the desire to collect a baby. Um, and maybe she was, I mean, most of the time she'd be holding a baby. And so you'd have to kill the mother as well to get the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, there's, there is a bias in the number of specimens and collections, but I think overall we tend to, um, kind of in studies comparing humans to primates, we sometimes forget to look at the subtleties of biological sex and we'll compare, um, you know, humans to gorillas in general. And maybe in doing that, uh, we're not thinking as much about the subtleties, but, um, I think it's something that there's becoming more increasing awareness about. And there was a paper just came out recently about the bias in collections of there being more male specimens. So I think people are working really hard to start addressing that concern. Like uh, in, in primatology or, um, you know, bioarchaeology? I think in both. Yeah, I really think in both. Mm-hmm. Primatology's kind of had a head start in thinking more about females in terms of the behavioral side. Yeah. They're... Um, there's been a lot of female primatologists. I mean, it's kind of primatology was started by, you, you could think of it in a way, started by Jane Goodall and Brute Galdekas and Diane Fossey, these three women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think in many ways, primatology has benefited from it being a field in which there are more women. And there's been more questions about female mate choice and female desire and um, female socioecology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, de- I definitely think primatology has benefited from that, but, um, yeah, it's just a really good book about, um, primatology in this way by Donna Haraway. She really like kind of examines feminism and primatology. It's something I love thinking about, but, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think we continue to think about it more and more, but I, I do think primatology has been lucky for having a lot of women in the field. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I haven't, I haven't read that book. I'm, I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, it's really good. It's called uh, Primate Visions. Okay, cool. Primate Visions. If we could just talk about uh, sexual differences in humans as well for a second. Uh, one of my earliest memories of, you know, seeing your name online was upon, you know, reading this article that had come out in the online publication Sapiens. And I thought it was a really great article that you wrote back in November 2018. And it was titled, What Our Skeletons Say About the Sex Binary. And the tagline for the article that you wrote was that uh, society increasingly accepts gender identity as existing along a spectrum. The study of people and their remains shows that sex should be viewed the same way. What is the meaning in that? Like, can you explain about why even biological sex, especially when estimated from human remains, shouldn't be viewed in such a binary way? Yeah. So, um, I'm, yeah, I'm so glad that you saw that article. It was really fun to write. And I think a lot of people who study the skeleton, um, have for a long time noticed that it's really hard to identify biological sex from it. And so it's, it's fun to share that now with the public. So we've been learning that biological sex is a lot more complicated than we originally thought. And um, I think sports was a really good analogy for that. So in the Olympics, slowly, um, they originally used to even kind of force people to go through 
biological sex inspections mm-hmm. to kind of prove their gender. And biological sex is definitely not the same thing as gender. And a lot of people identify as a different gender than the one that they were born in or don't identify with kind of any gender or both genders. Um, and that's definitely one issue. But another issue is that biological sex that you're born with isn't actually just either male or female. And every single thing you can choose to use to identify a biological sex is more complicated than either male or female. So chromosomes aren't always XX or XY. And sometimes people can have um, one of those and, and end up looking like Uh, the other gender. And um, there are a number of other chromosome combinations like XXY. And in addition to that, hormones, if you want to say, well, this testosterone level means you're male and this estrogen level means you're female, Mm -hmm. those levels actually overlap a ton between people. And males have estrogen and, and women have, or females have testosterone. And so every single kind of variable you can choose to separate out biological sex is actually way more complicated than either male or female. And um, the bones are the same way. So we can't just say, well, this skeleton is male, this skeleton is female. Of course, some individuals would look pretty clearly to be uh, male or female. Uh, it doesn't always necessarily mean they are, and, and mm-hmm. but most kind of fit in this in-between gray zone with a lot of overlap. And there are plenty of short men and tall women who are just as male or just as female as, um, and that height doesn't really mean anything about how male or female they are. Mm -hmm. And then in addition all that, it doesn't actually mean anything about what gender they expressed when they were alive. So it's Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a lot of ways, it's just way more complicated than we like to think it is. Sure. Yeah. It just sounds like it is really important to take into account that biological sex is not binary and it's a lot more complicated because you know we want to strive for like the more the most accurate science that we can do and something that i talk to a lot of my friends and colleagues about is in practice say we are um out on a dig and we're trying to analyze a skeleton as a bioarchaeologist you know what can we do to try and frame this better so um some ideas that i had were uh for instance when you're writing up the report um countless countless times in my experience i have seen reports say you know very simply you know 15 of these skeletons were male and i would prefer it if they actually said 15 of these skeletons were estimated to be males or whenever they say uh you know we perform sex determination on these skeletons, I would like it to be, as I said, sex estimation instead, or to really just refer to whatever system that you've used to estimate something that, quite frankly, doesn't exist on a binary anyway, but at least refer to what anatomical feature you are uh, quantifying and you know, estimating to be one thing or the other. You can refer to the anatomy itself instead of trying to presume something about someone's biological sex or gender. Yeah, I love that idea. I think that's really great. And I think um, a lot of studies tend to rely on the pelvis. Mm-hmm. It's one of the definitely one of the better indicators. But um, a lot of times, instead of just saying these are male, these are female, individuals, people will put a score, like a ranking of one to five. Right. And there'll be a number of individuals that are three in the middle. And they'll just kind of um, leave them in the three ranking. And that's and that's a way that they'll report it. And I, and I like that as well, kind of showing it as a spectrum instead of just a binary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But of course, that would not, it's not to say that even if we could genetically sequence them and we had all of their genome, it, it's not to say any way that we could know, you know, more than we already do. And it's just a lot more complicated. Yeah, it is. Oh, it's been so fun. Did you see that study that came out about the lovers? Oh, they yeah. Thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was that article about? Uh, yeah, so there was, um, oh, if I can remember it, they they found a, two skeletons holding. Mm-hmm. And so they thought it was lovers who kind of died in each other's arms. And then I think they uh, they did, was it a genetic test? And they found that they were both male. Mm-hmm. And um, then immediately people are like, oh, they're not lovers anymore. <laughs> and <laughs> everyone else is like, could still have been lovers. It doesn't mean they have to be brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, um, it is very uh, interesting, though. Like, I, I think that 
there are a lot, there have been, you know, if you just think about the, the, the legacy of archaeology already, you know, it's been like a hundred years of, of reports and, and research. How many times have people already uh, presumed something that they didn't actually know for sure? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so um, how are you doing for time? Oh, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I just have a couple of like quick questions. Um, this episode that you're on right now is actually going to come out on Wednesday, 13th of May. And it will in fact be the one year anniversary from when my first episode came out. Hey! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I know that you are somebody who, you know, cares very deeply about the importance of science communication, especially online. Um, like we mentioned already, like writing for popular publications. What else have you been doing on the internet? Yeah. Um, so I have been writing fun facts about human evolution on Twitter for about three years now. Um, there was a kind of discussion, a panel about biological anthropology in the public at a conference uh, a few years ago, and it really inspired me. So um, I have a number of followers there. You can check it out uh, at BioAnthFunFacts on Twitter. And just recently, I started um, making TikTok videos that I also post up on the Twitter, mm -hmm. which have been really fun to do. It's been a very different way to try to explain concepts. But in both of them, I just kind of share fun things about biological anthropology that I think are really interesting or, or illustrative. Um, but yeah, I wanted to ask you more about the podcast. Uh, so I really wanted to know what inspired you to start making it. And, um, and I also wanted to ask how long. So now I know it's been a year. Yeah. Yeah. What was what was the instigator for it? Oh, um, well, I remember when I was uh, doing my PhD, like I had always spoken to, you know, a lot of school kids in, in different classes, a lot of public audiences, maybe at the museum where, you know, I had like a bunch of bones at the front and I was sort of like demonstrating to them all the different features of the skeleton. And I just really enjoyed that. Um, but I always kind of felt it was a little bit limiting. So, you know, at, at maximum, I could have maybe 50 people in a public audience, right? Or I could have a class of, you know, 20 kids. And I was just thinking about like, how can I reach more people with all of this uh, anthropology content? So um, that's pretty much how I conceived of the podcast is because I knew that if I could, um, you know, if I hopefully did a good job, then I could actually, you know, put this science into people's ears and a lot more people at that. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's really exciting. Yeah. I mean, uh, when, when you went to that panel or that session about um, public anthropology, why did you think it was important for, for you to do and, and for you to try and start something? Yeah, biological anthropology is a really special field in that it's, it's not just about science and science literacy, where science outreach matters, but it's also about understanding what it means to be human. And there's a lot about biological anthropology and learning about it that can change how you think about what it means to be human. And so some of the people in this panel work on diet and talk about, you know, how it's very human to eat bugs. And that can really blow a lot of people's minds and kind of expand the way they think about what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really exciting because you can share science and and help people um, understand the new and exciting science that's happening. But I also think it's a really great place to kind of expand how we think about ourselves and our place in in this planet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because uh, I, I actually find from doing the podcast, you know, um, based on what some listeners have, uh, you know, tweeted, tweeted about even myself, like the, the very fact that I'm learning a lot by talking to experts like you. It's just, you know, it's the whole idea. And I always said that if I could get someone's um, expertise into, you know, one person's ears out there, then I've done my job uh, of, of like bringing that science like into people's lives. And um, hopefully it makes people think about, you know, what makes the human species. Yeah, totally. I think that's something that I love when I teach Intro to Human Evolution is asking people what it means to be human. And, mm -hmm. you know, at first we, we think a lot about, um, intelligence and language and art and those things are very unique but you know a lot of other animals are also making tools and maybe they're painting not the same way we are but that um, we definitely are situated among animals and evolved just like they did mm -hmm. and um, I think it can really foster kind of 
a really exciting feeling about primates and other animals and how we kind of fall within mm-hmm. them. When you're uh, constructing a uh, you know an outreach tweet for your page, what what happens in that first moment when you think of an idea? And how do you carry it forward? Yeah, I think it usually would come around teaching. So something that students thought was exciting or even just something I discovered that I hadn't heard of before. Mm-hmm. It's like, people need to hear this. This is so cool. Yeah. And so that's really kind of how it starts. Um, as I'm writing it, I'm always trying to take out any jargon or big words. And if I can't like, defining them, or even sometimes people like to learn the words. And so... And using them, but always defining what it means mm-hmm. within the tweet. Um, it's funny because every time I think this one's going to be a banger, everyone's going to love this fact. No one knows this. Like almost no one <laughs> will say anything. And then I'll tweet something like everybody knows this. This isn't that interesting. And it'll just blow up. So <laughs> I really, I have no ability to guess what people will and won't like. So I just keep producing what I think is interesting. And some of them, some of them are hits and some aren't. Yeah. Seeing what sticks. Yeah. Well, uh, what about like in your research itself or when you're like analyzing data or collecting data? There was that day one of your PhD when you were collecting your PhD data for the first time. If you could give day one of data collection, Alexandra, any advice, what, what advice would you want earlier Alexandra to take on board that you think would help her? Oh, that's such a fun question. Yeah, I think earlier Alexandra always had these exciting ideas and was afraid that they weren't worthwhile following. Um, I was afraid that they weren't what everybody else was asking and what I was supposed to ask. And so my advice for younger me would be, um, it's an interesting question. And you came up with something you thought was worth pursuing. And, you know, you might find out somebody's already done it, but you might find out that it's never been done. And that makes it worth asking. So um, I think not, not to hold yourself back and to definitely follow the questions that really intrigue you and not to be afraid to. Mm-hmm. No, that's really beautiful. I think as a message, I, I think that's, uh, I fully agree with that. Yeah. I used to think that, well, if I came up with this question and no one's asked it before, maybe they didn't ask it because it wasn't worth asking or they didn't ask it because it was a bad question to ask. Mm-hmm. Or, they didn't, or they didn't have the tools or the samples at the time, you know? Yeah. yeah. I've been learning not to let that hold me back. That worry. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you're doing your PhD, uh, what is your favorite beverage or snack to help deal with, uh, you know, tricky or stressful situations? Well, I didn't used to drink coffee, but I have <laughs> now become <laughs> a coffee drinker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I find that, you know, if you're stumped, going for a coffee break and saying hi to a friend can really help. Um, so it's more the social act of coffee that um, I've come to really appreciate yeah. uh, and the break that it kind of gives you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think. Um, I also just really love going out for my friends with Mexican and that always makes me feel better. Very nice. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, how many years do you have left of, uh, you know, relying on Mexican and coffee? I have um, two more years of funding, Mm -hmm. but um, I might try to find a third. So two or three more years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, one day when you finish your thesis and you've defended your work successfully in front of a panel, uh, what would you like to be the reaction of like your friends or your family, your loved ones in general? Presumably some of them might even be there, you know, watching your presentation. Do you think that they would get how nerdy you are about apes and bones? Oh, well, that's been something wonderful about tweeting is that um, my family has been able to kind of learn about all the things I love. Mm-hmm. And my dad's actually reads all my tweets oh. and will tell me when they make sense to him and when they don't. Um, so that's been really helpful. And now he knows a lot more about what I do and obviously how much I love it. Mm-hmm. But he's also able to help me understand when I can and can't kind of uh, when I am doing well and not well about communicating it to the public. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of them are very aware of how passionate I am about this. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think it'll be a surprise for them to, to walk in and see <laughs> what I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, last thing I wanted to do before we wind down is uh, I wanted to play a game if, if you're up for a game. Yeah, I'm up for it. So it's a science communication game, of course. Uh, and, you know, both you and I, I feel, you know, have some experience in talking about bones and teeth, telling people all sorts of uh, fun facts about the skeleton. And earlier today, I wrote down on tiny pieces of paper, uh, different parts of the skeleton. And I will pull a piece of paper out. I will read it. And both you and I have to come up with a fun fact that we can share with the listeners about that bone. 
Okay. Okay. I've, I've never done this, so uh, let's try and um, see how it goes. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> okay, so the first piece of paper says ulna. Oh, the ulna. Uh, I'll go first. So I think that my fact about the ulna that I think is really cool is that at the at the end, that's sort of closer to your body. I think it's really cool that there is a sort of um, hook-like shape that actually you know curls around at your elbow, um, hooking onto your uh, humerus. And um, I've always just found that joint really cool. Yeah. Okay. I think I have two. So okay. one of them is the funny bone. So your ulna is your funny bone, right? It's the that kind of that part that's sticking out that when you knock your funny bone, you're knocking that corner of the ulna, mm -hmm. and it, people think it's the humerus because that sounds like the funny bone. <laughs> yeah, but you're actually knocking that part that's sticking out of the ulna, and you're actually knocking the ulnar nerve on the ulna, mm -hmm. and the ulnar nerve um, is the only nerve that goes on the outside of a joint and not the inside of the joint. Mm -hmm. so it's really weird that there's a nerve over there that you're knocking when you're knocking your funny bone. Yep, and um, my other one is that when you um, when you kind of turn your hands from being kind of palms up to palms down, your radius is rotating over your ulna. Mm -hmm. So I think that's fun. Oh, wow, you're so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, let me take out another one. Okay, bone number two. Um, okay, bone number two, phalanges. Uh, the name of the bones that we have at the tips of our feet and the tips of our hands, like our fingers and toes. So phalanges. Do you have a fun fact about phalanges? Let me think for a second. I, uh, I always thought that it was really cool when maybe just about a decade ago, we discovered some uh, new species. We, we discovered a new species of human ancestor, a hominin that we found in South Africa called Australopithecus sediba. And what I found really remarkable about it was how this animal or this creature it had lived roughly about you know two million years ago and morphologically it was like something between like a homo species in in our uh, genus and something between and, and between an australopithecus species that came before it and if you look at the hand morphology a lot of the phalanges as well as the um, metacarpals and the, the wrist bones, it actually is like curved and it's, it looks like it, it might have maybe spent some time not just sort of grabbing objects, but also still swinging through the trees a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, yeah, the curved phalanges are really cool in um, primates when you're looking at like a gorilla or a chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. And in the feet, they're also curved. They have those kind of the ability to grab things with their toes. Mm. And so they have these kind of long... I mean, you could not really grab much with your toes, but they have these long toes with, that are kind of also have some curve to them. And it's fun when you show people a gorilla foot, they often think it's a hand. Yeah. And it's because of those long phalanges for sure. Yeah. Uh, I also think um, I can't remember off the top of my head, like which study or when, but I feel like I have read somewhere that even like uh, modern day, you know, rock climbers or mountain climbers, they actually have really like robust phalanges. Yeah, that's really cool. They do, they do hold most of themselves up with just that little curve in the fingers. Yeah. I think that it's actually like an area of like uh, further research, like for these uh, sort of extreme sports, um, what that does to your skeleton. But I, I find that really interesting. Um, one last one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I feel like you have the advantage here, given that you study the skeletons of like more than one species, you know, <laughs> and I'm just limited to humans. <laughs> okay. Cranium. Cranium is a great one. Cranium is a great one. There's so many fun facts there. Where do we start? <laughs> I mean, um, a fun one is that the cranium bones fuse together, um, differently than the long bones. They fuse together in sutures. Mm -hmm. They kind of look like these zigzags all over the skull. And when you have a baby, you know, they tell you about that soft spot on the top of the skull. That's mm -hmm. um, actually a space between these kind of bones that haven't been fused together yet. So later, obviously, when you're an adult, you don't have a soft spot anymore. And it's because those bones finished fusing together. So I always think mm -hmm. that that one's pretty fun. Mm -hmm. Um, the one that I really like uh, about the cranium, um, especially when I was uh, in undergrad and learning about the different ape species or even hominins, is that some hominins in our um, human evolutionary tree and uh, a lot of uh, other apes, so um, gorillas are a great example of this, have this like sagittal keel or sagittal torus, which is the scientific name for this, um, this sort of like ridge that forms in the middle, like going, uh, going back 
across your head like backwards and it's sort of thicker and it sort of juts out where we suppose like a lot of like muscles related to chewing would have attached to and would have anchored themselves into the cranium at. Yeah, that's a really fun one. I love that. And then I also love, you know, the, the cheekbone um, that those muscles attach to and go uh, through. I love showing people that on the skull. Mm-hmm. It's really fun to show the, the places that muscles attach to on the skull. Yeah. But that one is, is huge in gorillas for sure. Yeah. And I love it when, um, especially like you have a bunch of kids, uh, you can actually tell them to like feel the side of their head and then like chew a little bit. Yeah. And they're going to feel like their muscles moving around that uh, cheekbone. I love doing that too. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so where can people find you online if uh, people have any questions or um, they want to you know, find the various science communication things that you're doing? Yeah, totally. So they can find me both on TikTok and on Twitter at, at BioAnthFunFacts. They can DM me questions on Twitter for sure. Cool. Uh, and... Do you have a hashtag for this episode? Maybe we could do something with our game because we we talked about um, maybe like hashtag Alna is the funny bone. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Okay. Okay. Hashtag Alna is the funny bone. Listeners, if you want to let us know that you've heard the whole episode, then let us know with that hashtag and find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram at ArcananthPod. Thank you so much to the patrons of the show, whether you have joined recently or whether you have uh, been here since the beginning. Thank you so much for all of your support because I really couldn't do it without you. If you listening out there want to join the patron program and become a supporter of this public anthropology podcast, then go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod and find out all the options for doing so. Any bit would be very much appreciated and will help me a lot. Find new episodes of the show on arcananth.com where I will be uh, uploading a bunch of links to Alexandra's work in, in science communication online. And you'll also find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. Um, Alexandra, thank you so much for uh, sharing your research on the show and for you know playing a fun game with me and talking about science communication. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I love the game. It was a great idea. <laughs> I might have to like pull that out every time uh, we have an osteologist on the show. Yeah, you should totally do it. <laughs> um, okay, well, listeners, thank you so much for hearing this episode. I'll have another one out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.